It's amazing to me the design of a fitted sheet. It is designed to fit on your bed and to stay there. Amen? Then after so long a period of time, hopefully shorter than longer, you take it off to refresh it by washing it. So you place it into the washer, probably with some, if you're economical like I am, with some other clothes, and you wash it, and it goes from the washing machine into the dryer. Now, it's a fitted sheet. It was designed to fit on the bed. But how is it that in the midst of that dryer, it decides to take on a new life of its own? And when the buzzer goes off, you get ready to remove that fitted sheet along with those other articles. And somehow, during that period of time, that fitted sheet has overtaken all the other articles and tucked them into one corner of your fitted sheet to destroy the purpose of the fitted sheet and the dryer. Amen? Because as you pull it out, you now are untangling and unwinding this fitted sheet to only find out that all those other, other articles, as well as that corner of that fitted sheet, did not complete its drying cycle. The sermon is this. We were created by God for good works, specifically within each one of us. That's what the Bible says. And then we start to live our lives and get confidence in and of our own selves so much that we get all tangled up and impact so many other people that the work that God created for you and for me and for us to do doesn't get done or has to be redone. Remember that the next time you pull out that fitted sheet. Isn't it true? The church has for so long gotten so wrapped up into so much other than the purpose of what God wants us to do and we take along a lot of people with us and and at the end all we have is this ball that's wrapped up so tight and as we unwrap it only to find out that not only have we not done what we were supposed to do but we have also brought in other folks And allowed them not to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish through them too. It's time we fix the parable of the fitted sheet. There's a sermon in everything. Take out your Bibles this morning. As you're looking at your Bibles, one quick announcement. If you ordered pies last week, Lisa Neerig will be in the back by the freezer to help hand those out. Now, we still are working on sign-up sheets, folks. I love you all, but we're still working on it. There were three cherry pies available. Five of you signed up. Now, you can call that new math if you want, but it don't work out in the end because there were just three. So please don't blame Lisa, but y'all five, you have to work that out in the back because I ain't getting in the middle of that, all right? But the rest of the pies are back there for you to take home. The Holy Spirit is a person and is divine. We'll repeat that for quite a while. The work of the Spirit can be divided into two categories, which we've talked about as well, knowledge and power. Last week, we talked about knowledge. We looked at the work of the Spirit in regard to knowledge. We discovered the greatest source of knowledge from the Holy Spirit is the Bible, God's Word. The Spirit oversaw 
the writing of God's word and work through revelation and inspiration. That's what we talked about last week. We continue today in our journey to understand more clearly the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, by beginning to look at the power available through the Holy Spirit. As you've noticed over the last few weeks, I have notes. I believe in letting God speak through me, and normally that's just the way it happens. But as I've studied and we've begun this journey of the Holy Spirit, there has been so much knowledge and information through the scriptures and then commentaries and other books that I am barely breezing over the top. So I encourage you to dig deep yourself. Even though we may spend a year on this journey through the Holy Spirit, after we say it's done, it will not be done because the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible as far as us gaining a full and true knowledge of it. And it demands that you, with your Bibles and through prayer and your reading of the Bible, connecting with God to understand and then unleash the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. That's what the Bible says. Now what Mark says. The Bible says that when you have received Christ, the gift that seals you, as the Bible says, is the Holy Spirit. It's there. Believe it. Then unleash it. According to educated writers and resources, the Holy Spirit powers Powers falls into three general categories. The miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, power to work miracles or do other obviously supernatural things. The ministering power, the ability to perform works of service for the body of believers. And the third one, the moral power of the Holy Spirit, a strengthening of the will to enable obedience to the Lord's command. Often those first two, the miraculous power and the ministerial power, probably not saying that right, often those first two overlap, happen at the same time, or could. World history, listen close, this is, was so much fun to, to study this week. World history is divided into two major periods. Get it, folks, world history. The age before the first coming of Jesus Christ, we refer to as B.C., B.C. The age after his coming, we refer to as A.D. Now, before we go on, I just want you to understand the breadth and length and of all what we just said. The world history is divided into two major periods of which our society has found so that we can be orderly and administratively function in our lives, our daily lives, that we had to draw somewhere a conclusion and find a foundation for all of us to be able to exist and have some, some symbolic way to get through life. Amen? And guess what they chose? And we still abide by it today. Doesn't matter what the world says 
They can fight all they want, but if they want to fight, we can show them that their daily day is picked out and founded on these two things, B.C. and A.D. Isn't it amazing for a world that doesn't want God? Let's rip out B.C. and A.D. and let's see how well they do. How well the calendar will work without that. For calendar purposes, the transition takes place after the birth of Christ. In regard to God's dealing with his people, you and me, the transition takes place at the death of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, the old covenant age came to an end and the new covenant of which we speak began. This new time period actually began on the day of Pentecost. The event was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But this new covenant, which we're going to talk about this morning and and look at the scriptures and how it reveals to us, actually kicked off on Pentecost. Because the very core of the new covenant, the the central act, was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the central core of the new covenant of which we now live today is the Holy Spirit. One very important item that makes this truly a new age. Now, I'm not talking about all what the world talks about new age, okay? But it is a new age for us. It was a new covenant that we now are a part of is the role played by the Holy Spirit. A new work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. A new age, a new covenant, but the Holy Spirit is not new. Amen? I just want to make sure you're awake. Page two, as Paul Harvey would say. The Spirit has been, is now, and will continue to be present and working. Now, turn in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let's look at what the Bible teaches us about the breadth of the presence of the Holy Spirit and, the, and then see the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and the part the Holy Spirit plays. Because we just said in the New Covenant, the New Age, you might say, the Holy Spirit is, one of, is the cornerstone on top of the actual event that started it, and that was Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, from the very beginning of the Holy Word of God, we see the introduction of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were like me, and I pray that you weren't, and you were so much more educated and so much more in-depth than I, I just took Genesis 1, 2 and said, yep, the Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament. But have you ever studied the depth of the Holy Spirit's involvement in the Old Covenant? Wait a minute, Mark, that's the new age. You just said that. That's the new covenant. But I'm going to tell you that the Trinity existed from the very beginning, which of which we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. But it's more than just this one verse that says the Holy Spirit hovered over this creation or during this creation. The Holy Spirit played an integral part in the Old Testament, just different 
And we are even given that information from the prophecies and the book of prophecies of how that transition is going to take place. And it's important for us to understand that. Turn over with me, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, then says this, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he, is also, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, we can make sermons just out of this section of Scripture. But what I want us to see here is that the Lord is saying, in regard, and there, the whole context of this chapter is the corruption of mankind and so on and so forth, but specifically here as we read over this we might have missed it then the lord said my spirit the holy spirit he's talking here giving us another indication of it of the holy spirit's involvement in the old testament it's not just a new testament thing god was working to stem the sinfulness of man and the holy spirit was playing a role the bible says the spirit of god the holy spirit came upon many to equip with wisdom and ministry skills. Look with me in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, verse 34. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, there's a name we've heard before, right? But we might have missed it because of the breadth of the story of Gideon. But here in Judges chapter 6, we're reminded in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now turn with me to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14, first verse 6, Judges 14 verse 6 says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat through he had, though he had nothing in his hand but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done he was speaking of Samson here another big name of the scriptures but here we are tucked away in one little verse we're reminded that the spirit of god was upon Samson and we just read upon Gideon and we just read was present in early Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 1. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 10. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 10, when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. Now we're talking about Saul. So Saul and Gideon and Samson, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, 
the Holy Spirit and its important works of ministry even then. We go on to see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, how the Spirit was with David, King David. If you'll turn with me to Exodus... Exodus chapter 31, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I see I have called by name Bezela, I probably mispronounced that, I apologize, the son of Ura, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. The Spirit of God was given by God himself to this individual, and if you read on in the story, on another individual. Why? So that they could have under, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in all kinds of craftsmanship. The Holy Spirit was all-encompassing. Why? Because God needed something done. And through the power of the Holy Spirit that existed from the very beginning, God utilized the Spirit to confer on people ministry or acts of ministry that were needed at the time to move forward in God's plan of reconciliation and salvation. Samuel, Gideon, King Saul, David, the Holy Spirit was active and living and working because God so directed it in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. We find in the Old Testament as well the prophecy of the new and special presence of the Spirit that was coming. The new time, the A.D., after death, the Pentecost that we would share. Turn with me to Ezekiel, please. The prophet of Ezekiel, chapter 36. You're going to wear out the Old Testament this morning, or at least for a little while. Ezekiel chapter 36, still in the Old Testament. Now we're in the book of a prophet. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. Now the context of the chapter is Israel to be renewed by his namesake. This renewing of the nation of Israel. This restoration of the nation of Israel, God's people who had forsook him. So the context is this, but here in verse 25 through 27, we read this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The prophet is telling us of what's going to take place in the new covenant after the old. And he starts to give us an indication here in the, in the prophecy of Ezekiel about the new role the Holy Spirit will play. I want to read to you from one of the 
resources that I used because I couldn't say it any different, and there's no sense of paraphrasing it because I would lose something somewhere, from the Logos Bible software in regard to this new spirit and this regeneration here that the prophet Ezekiel is telling us about in chapter 36. He says, God promised to regenerate the people spiritually by giving them a new heart and a new spirit. Verse 26. No longer would they then, no longer would they be characterized by. Now equate this with where we're sitting today. Don't let it get stuck in the Old Testament in your mind. No longer would they be characterized by perverse thinking and unresponsiveness to God. The change of will from stone to flesh would be made possible by the new covenant presented in Jeremiah chapter 31. This new internalized, remember that word, internalized covenant would lead the people to turn to the new shepherd, the Messiah, and exchange their rebelliousness for a new heart sensitive to the will of God. The enabling power to do this would be provided by a new spirit within them, internalized. God called this new spirit my spirit, he said, meaning Yahweh's Holy Spirit who would empower them to obey the law of God. Now capture this, folks, because he's talking about that which lives within each one of us right now. Let's bring it forward. The temptation to find the fulfillment of the new heart and the new spirit exclusively in Christian conversion in this age should be resisted. New Testament conversion is only a preview of the massive spiritual revival God has in store for all of true Israel and Gentiles who believe. You thought it couldn't get any better. But according to the Word of God, it gets better. The New Testament concept of redemption came out of the theology of the Old Testament. The similarities exist because what God wants to do for Israel is what He wants to do for everyone. The point of Israel's election to nationhood in Exodus chapter 19 was that they be mediators of the message of God's salvation by fulfilling their missionary role as a kingdom of priests. That, the plan was the nation of Israel would do this, this evangelizing, but it didn't work. Why? Because they were disobedient. Sound familiar? When Israel did not fulfill its role, God used the New Testament church as a means. The New Testament church, who's that? Us. You can say it loud. You, you can say it loud outside of church, but it's us. The New Testament church is us. So it gets personal here, folks. God used the New Testament church as a means of presenting the message of redemption. It's our work God has assigned for us to do because his chosen people didn't do it. So we better listen up and do it. So the church will be used ultimately to reach not only the world, but listen to this. The church will be used ultimately to reach Israel as well. Oh my gosh. It's one thing re reaching our neighbors and all those folks, right? 
But according to the word of God, the New Testament church, you and me, we are going to be used by God to not only reach the Gentiles, which is all of us, but also to reach the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. It's important. The Spirit of God will move them, the church, to follow, to walk in his laws. Inability to keep the law was a primary concern presented by the Apostle Paul. He lamented his, he lamented his struggle and failure to keep the law in his own strength. If, and we're going to read here in a minute. And followed that lament with the solution in Romans 8. The solution to his dilemmas. Now we're talking, now we've come forward to the New Testament. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, all right? So, y'all out of the Old Testament into the New. Other than those 12 people that went last night, the rest of you should be awake. (laughs) All right? We've come from the Old Testament, but we've seen and heard read the Word of God. I'm not just saying that the Holy Spirit had a powerful work in the Old Testament. We read it, right? You heard it. We heard it. It's the Word of God. So you either believe the Word of God or you don't. So the Word of God says the Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament and it had a powerful part to play. Now we have transitioned to the New Testament where the Holy Spirit comes to be the cornerstone of this new age and this new covenant of which you and I, the New Testament church, have a lot of responsibility in, all right? But we see that in the New Testament, Paul struggled. He struggled in his role and so on and so forth. And we're going to read that if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 7. So keeping in mind this transition, we see the Apostle Paul, the the man, the man, Apostle Paul here, in Romans 7, verses 13 and on. Let's do 12, so we start with a sentence. Oops, no, let's don't. Go over to 13, wrong one. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? This is Paul speaking. May it never be, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. We're talking about being united in Christ. And I know that's a, you're you're going, oh my gosh, where did, I need to read that a little slower, Mark. Well, we don't have time. You read that slower later, all right? Let's go on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, Paul says, sold into into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Have you ever been there? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, because the law shows us sin. But anyway, so now, in verse 17, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, for the good I want, I do not do, 
That's Apostle Paul saying this. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's a whole new sermon too. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man... That I am who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other with my flesh the law of sin. May God's blessing be upon the reading of his word. I believe that in this section Paul was revealing with considerable candor his difficulty in meeting the radical demands of the Christian faith. Now think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the man that if he walked in, we'd just be googly eyes to get his autograph, yes? I believe that in this section, Paul was revealing with considerable candor, honesty, inward looking, his difficulty in meeting the radical demands of the Christian faith. Let's let's just don't make the Christian faith some kind of icing on a cupcake. How many would agree it's hard to live as a follower of Jesus Christ proclaiming the faith that we have in this world? It is. If you think anything less, then you're not not connected and plugged in, and I'm not being judgmental. At the same time, he was using his own experience to describe the inevitability of spiritual defeat whenever a believer fails to appropriate the Spirit of God for victory. Whenever... A believer, you and me, if, if you're a believer here today or online, when we fail to appropriate what? Appropriate the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, yes, the Holy Ghost, when we fail to appropriate that Spirit of God within our lives for victory. How many of you want victory? This is March Madness. Everybody wants victory. Some win, some lose, some stay, some go home, and then we forget about it all. Romans 7 does not describe the totality of Paul's spiritual experience. In fact, it is the preparatory to what follows later on in Romans 8 and so on. It sets the stage for the triumph of chapter 8. It probably is true that in the lives of the most earnest Christians, the two conditions Paul described exist in a sort of cyclical advance. One, the recognition of our inability to live up to our deepest spiritual belonging, spiritual longings in chapter 7, leads us to cast ourselves upon God's Spirit for power and victory in chapter 8. Do we cast ourselves upon God's Spirit for power and victory? We don't even want to talk about the Holy Ghost. We don't even want to mention the Holy Spirit. And yet I'm telling you folks, the more I read into this, the more God lays on my heart... The reason we are not the church that God wants us to be today is because we have left out the Holy Spirit. How many of you ever heard? Well, we're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because we're afraid if we're confronted with the Holy Spirit and our belief of the Holy Spirit will be challenged and won't be able to answer the challenge because we don't fully understand, maybe even not fully accept because we don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit that is the foundational thing for the New Testament church today. 
Failure to continue in reliance upon the power of the Spirit. Now listen, failure to continue in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit places us once again in a positive or in a position inviting defeat. How many of you like defeat? No, we want to win. That's how God made us. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have the ultimate victory already. But if we don't call upon the power of the Spirit and acknowledge that, then we're heading, and not only heading toward, we're literally inviting defeat. Sanctification is a gradual process that repeatedly takes the believer through this reoccurring sequence of failure through dependency upon self to triumph to triumph, to victory through the indwelling spirit. We just done page three. We're on page four now. I want to share something with you that was just an incredible revelation. The spirit was present in the Old Testament. We just, we just read it. Amen. We all, do you all believe? If you don't, then you don't believe in the Word of God, and that's a whole nother story or sermon. So he was present in the Old Testament. Samuel, Gideon, Samson, David. God used the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to confer the Holy Spirit on people for ministry and works of ministry. Now catch this as we get ready to conclude. The difference that was spoke of in Ezekiel to the New Testament and the new covenant of which we live and you and I now have is that the prophecy was and it is fulfilled is that during the new covenant in the New Testament church that we are, the Holy Spirit now indwells in us. Nobody's smiling. Oh, give me a break. It's the second overtime in the last 30 seconds, and your team just hit the winning shot. <laughs> the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was conferred upon people to build, to do works of ministry, and those things. And it didn't live within them. It was conferred upon them for that ministry, for that time. The difference from the old to the new, which is you and me, folks, is that God promised that it would be a new spirit. His spirit, it would come in a different way, and that is a way of indwelling, that it lives forever within us. That's why he says the word of God will forever be on our hearts and our mind. Our hearts and our minds. Wrong way. You get it? That's why we'll know, because the Holy Spirit has been given in such a format to indwell within us, not conferred upon us for a brief period of time or for a special ministry. When you walked in here, if you're a believer of Jesus, the Holy Spirit walked in with you, inside of you. When you walk out of here, if you're a believer of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and it's going to go with you. It goes with you everywhere. Sometimes that's not good to think about, but he does because he indwells. He was a gift. And we must look inwardly to this reliance and become reliant upon this powerful part of the Trinity of God himself that's been given to us to unleash the power so that the world will come to know Jesus. 
the encouragement for us is what? It's for the return of Jesus. But until Jesus returns, Jesus said he, when he left, I'll give you someone that will help and comfort and, and be your power. And we have that now as we anticipate and live in reliance on the Holy Spirit and be honest and let the Holy Spirit, as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, to do its work through us, the church, so that when Jesus comes again, it will be sweet victory. Amen. A.W. Tozer says this, when we exercise the gifts of God's Spirit, energized by the Spirit, though we may not build big as the world sees it, we will build forever. 